Hello and welcome to The Bridge. Uh, I'm joined this week as every week by my enigmatic uh, co-host, uh, Zach. And this week we have a new album. Uh, actually, it's an album we've already sort of talked about. Uh, we mentioned it in one of our previous, in, in the previous Omnibus. Uh, we decided to do a full scale review on Nick Cave and Warren Ellis's Carnage because I honestly thought it was the, one of the more interesting releases that has come out and I thought we should uh, take a closer look into it. Yeah, it's definitely interesting for a number of reasons. Specifically, how they decided to not release it underneath the Bad Seeds moniker. And Warren Ellis is a longtime member of the Bad Seeds. I would say he's perhaps the helm of the band outside of Nick Cave. Right, so they've been working together from my understanding since uh, the '90s. Yeah, from the since the '90s for sure. I can't remember. I don't. I can't recall exactly on which album Warren Ellis entered the Bad Seeds. Okay. But uh, maybe it was Let Love In. I'm not. Sh- I I I'd have to look it up. It's kind of interesting but, uh, because. Um... They've worked, I've worked on some film scores together, Warren Ellis and Nick Cave. And Warren Ellis has always been part of the Bad Seeds for uh, quite a while, since like the 90s, some at some album. Uh, and Warren has also like uh, prominently produced several albums, solo albums from Nick Cave, like Ghost Teen, uh, which I believe was a pretty big release from this, uh, from this decade. So it that, is kind of that interesting. was a bad seed. That was a bad seeds record. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, he he was um, like head producer on these uh, uh, as well. Like, what is the case last solo release? Was that the Skeleton Key? No, he doesn't release music. Uh, it's always usually on with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. He doesn't release music. Uh, solo. Okay. Yeah, just under the just under Nick Cave. Okay. Um. They do have a, a another side project called Grindaman, but they haven't released any new music through Grindaman since the early 2010s. I think 2012 was the last Grindaman release. Yeah, so it's it's kind of curious, like why they decided to go with the collaborative uh, labeling for this one uh, versus some of their other other albums instead of just making this a bad seed. Uh, I guess from my understanding, there was a this is kind of more of a place they came to because of COVID restrictions. And they, it was just easier to work between uh, Warren and Nick Cave uh, the, individually. And that makes sense because I watched a documentary, a Nick Cave documentary recently within the past few months. And both of them are based in Brighton now. That's sort of where they settled down. Okay. And during the during the documentary it's sort of like a day in the life of nick cave while they were putting together the archive material for the nick cave museum in copenhagen in denmark mm-hmm. and anyways he goes to warren ellis's house and they're just sort of reminiscing about you know back in the day and they have a recording session and all it all takes place in brighton and so because of the pandemic it would make sense that uh, they were able to just do a collaborative effort between the two of them right more intimate, not incorporating other uh, band members. Yeah, it kind of—I think it was a a choice by a situation, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's kind of how it feels. Um, but you, uh, you're, you're a 
fairly familiar with their discography and I'm more of a uh, a breezy uh, watcher from the sidelines. I'm, I, this is probably the second album from Nick Cave from beginning to end that I've listened to, which my other one would have been Boatman's Call from, uh, you. I think you said like 20 years ago, I think that album came out? It came out in 97 or 98. It was a breakup album uh, dealing with, yeah, Nick Cave's breakup with PJ Harvey. Okay. So that and like a few singles here and there, Red Right Hand, stuff like that, I've heard. I heard a track or two off Murder Ballads, but I couldn't remember what they were at this point. Um, and for this uh, album and listening to this, I did expand and listen to a little bit more. Um, I went back and listened to some Birthday Party. Um, I uh, Nikki, was it Nikki the Stripper, I think I listened to. Um, uh-huh. a very inter- <laughs> very interesting song. Uh, I kind of liked it. It it was a uh, very abrasive and out there, and just kind of chaotic. Uh, not you could see where that was the root of where he is now, but he it was definitely more in his punk uh, teen years, and it came out in his music, from what I could tell. I I don't know if he's released much under that. The birthday party. No, the birthday party are dissolved. They dissolved in the early 80s and then they made the Bad Seeds, I think, in 84. But, yeah, when when they were recording underneath the birthday party, that's when he, he was living in, you know, West Berlin, which was like the heroin capital of the world, and he was addicted to heroin. And okay, that makes just sense. Just living a really, like, chaotic rock star lifestyle, living in some dude's closet and just playing live shows and, Yeah. Yeah, if you listen they, to the birthday they, party, they, they it all came like from Australia and were touring around Europe. Like they were incredibly raw at that point. And what you get on this record is somebody who's been in, you know, recording music for almost forty years now and is fully formed and in their late to mature period. The other uh, album I touched on for, for this album was I listened to a little bit of Ghost Teen. Um, and I kind of familiarized myself a little bit with this kind of concept that, uh, and you might be able to speak more of this, it's like he had, there's a trio of albums from uh, the 2010s, I believe, that kind of had to do with his son's passing. Well, the first album, Push the Sky Away, released in the early 2010s before the incident with his son occurred Mm -hmm. and that was a notable shift in sound to a far more spacey ethereal type sound that incorporated some some more synths the lyrical presentation was far more um cryptic and then that had a took a on a new form with skeleton tree because they had record they had written all the songs for that record but then during the recording and the production phase his son tragically passed away and so then they changed gears and that became a very melancholic record the way that the way that it sounded no this is the record that came out after push the skyway called skeleton tree i think yes. it came out in okay. 2015 or 2016 Okay, and then Ghostine is sort of it was a double LP and was very much more in this 
ethereal, heavenly vein. The album cover is even sort of new agey. There's like unicorns, and it's like in this weird Garden of Eden paradise setting. And uh, it's sort of him coming to grips with the passing of his son. And it's a meditative conclusion to those to that that cycle of albums right so this album has is of note the one that we're talking about uh today carnage is of note because there are for the first time in quite a long time from my understanding nick cave delivers a little more attitude and swagger on some of this on some of these songs than he's done in quite a while on the first half of the record yes yes uh on the second half of the record uh uh, to get into the kind of bits of the record, the second half is a lot more like the previous three, from what my understanding. Uh, it was more like Ghost Teen and more more like Skeleton Tree. Yeah, I would uh, definitely agree. It seems like it was, a, for me, it was to describe what my listening experience was. It was a little bit disappointing because um, for the first half of the record, they're building you up to think that oh, they've captured a new sound or they're evolving their sound with you know the it's still sort of meditative in quality musically it's quite repetitive but they use a lot of wiry just striking guitar chords or warren ellis um, has some you know morose sounding violin chords and then but nick cave has got got some of this older aggression in his voice that you would sort of associate with maybe dig lazarus dig or some of the earlier 90s records. However, on the back end of the record, that all sort of goes away, and it becomes far more lighter in tone. It's, even though the content is contemplates the pandemic situation and can sort of incorporate love ballads, mm -hmm. but the, the vocal presentation is far more intimate and not so aggressive and doesn't bring the same energy well let's get a little bit into that first side a bit um one thing i want to ask you about nick cave a little bit is he someone who's historically used electronic elements in his music like synths and stuff like that um this is something that has really occurred in the last decade or so okay because he starts out this album um, kind of how I kind of expected him to, uh, with Hand of God, with the, with this kind of like a, almost a setup for like a ballad. Um, mm -hmm. He kind of comes in, he's singing, and he r delivers the first verse before this very distorted, high-rising string section plays, and it just transitions into this almost uh, electronic beat uh, after that. And I was kind of curious if this that was something unique to his sound going into this album or something he had experimented with before but with my limited exposure to Nick Cave this was new to me yeah well I think uh, also the with the shifting band members of the Bad Seeds um, Warren Ellis has sort of like I said earlier taken the is at the helm of the band now and he's classically trained and so I think since his um, position in the band has become more solidified and uh, he plays a more prominent role in the musical direction, 
the sound has incorporated far more of these uh, orchestral string arrangements. Right, and he's a violinist uh, by trade, I'll say. So a lot yeah. of the music that Warren Ellis brings and a lot of the compositionals that he'll bring to the album are usually uh, more string-based. Yeah, right. Um, but like I said, on the first song, Hand of God, I, he goes into like this, how would I describe it? Um, the way I've gotten it written here in my notes is it was an oddly paced song uh, with a particularly with it being an opening track. Uh, he delivers his opening lyrics in a slow rising string and slow piano, and it gives this impression you're about to listen to a standard ballad. Uh, but then pretty abruptly, uh, 25 seconds into the song, it changes entirely and brings out these interesting drum beats that are kind of electronic and dancey. Even though the song itself is not a dancey song, the the dancey drum is still part of the song, and it kind of gives it a weird feeling, uh, especially as it goes through and, and Nick Cave's baritone vocals are going, um, and then now the strings over the electronic beat. There's, it just came off like very David Lynchian and kind of how the sounds were coming together, kind of like a little Twin Peaks. And I kind of enjoyed it, but it was definitely odd the first few times I listened to it, and it kind of took me a bit to kind of get into it. I would say the comparison you made to David Lynch is interesting because I found the album to... It is a little bit cinematic, the musical landscapes they're creating. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, this song is a testament to that. And to follow up with what you were saying... Yeah, it starts out with the with these classical chords, but then they incorporate, yeah, this. I don't know if I'd call it a dancey beat, but it's a uh, it's playing at a different tempo. It has a and it's electronic, so you have both like the analog and the digital playing off each other. And I thought, oh wow, this is interesting. This is a sort of a new sound for them, but it seemed like a logical progression based on where they were coming from with the with the previous three records. I wanted to ask you what you what do you think of the refrain on this on this track Hand of God 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 It's great. I it, that yeah. that whole Hand of God refrain is actually I think what sells the song for me. It brings everything together and actually kind of like brings some interesting personality out of it where I think uh, cuz it's like a 5 minute song and most yeah. of these songs are uh, on this album. Uh, I should say there's eight of them, and most of them are about uh, four and a half to eight, uh, sorry, four and a half to five minutes long on average. Um, so one of the things I kind of will talk about a little bit is I think uh, some of the songs didn't have enough to fill the, the time frame that they're given. And if it wasn't for this refrain of Hand of God, uh, I think that would be something that the first track suffered from but because of this hand of god refrain it brings a lot of energy and kind of like holds the length of the uh the track together uh plus the kind of interesting string arrangements kind of like do their part and uh nikkei's baritone voice is unique in its, in its own respect so i think uh honestly the refrain was the highlight of the track it kind of really pulled all the pieces together without it i think the track kind of gets a a little redundant and a little uh, dragged on at the end. Yeah, uh, I'm not a huge fan of the refrain, honestly. Not with the idea of the refrain itself, but just the way it's sung. You think so? 
Yeah, because he comes out sort of storms blazing in his voice. It's a more of an aggressive tone. It's, it was quite gripping for me. And I'm coming from the perspective of like a longtime fan of the band. And I was really excited. And then this light-sounding hand of God, very... Um, and not distorted, but they have certainly done some production on his voice in in the refrain, and it's not something that would be able to be recreated in in a live performance. Uh, are you saying that's Nick? I didn't wouldn't have put the tune together. I wouldn't have realized that was Nick Cave's voice. I would have thought that's a backup singer. No, that was Nick Cave's voice. Oh, really? They just distorted it. See, He's I... got a pretty. He's got a pretty long range. If you listen to the, especially the past few records, he hits these higher ranges. Okay. See, I, I always took it as like a backup singer that he had on the track. Um, yeah. I, I really enjoyed it because it, it, it came off very um, orchestral and anthemic, and I thought it really added this really kind of like interesting side to the song. Because mm-hmm, yeah. I'll be honest I with get... you, I didn't think Nick Cave's vocals were all that uh, interesting on this track. Oh yeah. Um, no, I was, it was, it was like a chapter of the old, old book, which is something for longtime fans. I think, um, even though the new music is good, there's a, there was a certain aggression missing from his vocal delivery that this song brings and that other songs on the first half of the album bring that, uh, are exciting. Uh, there's definitely parts where I think he definitely gets aggressive on these opening tracks, uh, particularly uh, White Elephant and even a bit on Shattered Ground. Um, I thought it were very interesting. Uh, but I thought some of these other tracks, he kind of is in this realm of kind of comfort that sometimes if I'm not paying attention, I can kind of lose track of him a bit. He kind of like blends in, I thought. But you're, you're saying well, that he's a little more aggressive even on those tracks from where he's been uh on the back end of the album you mean uh just across the whole album i would say i think the main examples of his aggressive vocals come from white elephant and shattered ground yeah shattered ground a little bit i guess but white elephant and i would say this track here hand of god okay uh are more reminiscent of older nick cave okay uh, and even have you taken a peek at the lyrics of this song? Like it's I essentially. Did, um, they were interesting, but I I wasn't. They were kind of a little obtuse. Uh, he talks a lot about this river and going into the middle of the river and um, just swimming there, and then you know your body is a river on the on the hotel on a hotel bed, and I kind of got a little lost. Like there are interesting visuals. Uh, that he creates in this song, but I didn't really pull quite a concrete uh, meaning or anything from them. Yeah, well, his lyrics, especially like over the past decade, have become far more visual-based and are very much jump from image to image Mm -hmm. without uh, necessarily having strong links between the images however like this album song in my opinion is about someone who's contemplating committing suicide he they do kind of play with that image a bit um 
like it says here like after the refrain right. of like hand of god and coming from the sky he's saying he's going to swim to the middle stay there for a while way down low way way down low let the river cast its spell so i was kind of getting that idea as well this kind of like contemplating suicide contemplating like is it really all worth it um it's when he starts talking about like the singing boys sitting on the bridge throwing pennies at the edge and the peasants working in the fields keep their heads way down low don't want to let on what they know and, and this whole section there kind of like didn't fit that that kind of theory i was building and then he brings up your body of water flowing across the bed your body of water spread across the hotel bed and there felt to me like there was more going on here than than this yeah. kind of idea of suicide that i kind of got lost i was like what is exactly happening here you know this record as far as the lyrics go I like a lot of the lyrics, but sometimes his way to get to where he's going is a little bit strange. And even on Ghostine, he had a lot of these references to motels and hotel beds. I don't know what his fascination is with those. I guess, you know, living on the, being on the road and stuff. Yeah. Stuff as a musician, that sort of thing stands out in your mind. He also likes to talk but... about the, the kingdom of God a lot, from what I've noticed. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think it's just, you know, obviously with the passing of his son, that must have been a pretty racking existential experience. So I don't think him to be a, to be a Christian, per no, se. No, I don't mean that. When, I think he talks about it almost like just as like an imagery to cast and, and to use in his lyrics. I don't find him to be a super religious. I think he just likes religious imagery in his lyrics. Because I'm pretty sure back on Boatman's Call, there was a, a, a song with Kingdom in it as well. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, so, like, that was before, obviously, this, the tragedy happened. So I think he has, like, a fascination with these kind of images. But this song here, uh, I thought the lyrics were kind of interesting. But um, I actually enjoyed lyrics more on some of these other tracks where he created more interesting visuals with the with kind of what he wrote. Um, but before I get to some of those other tracks, I, I think we'll move on. Um, I was actually kind of... Actually, let's move on to the second track because it will kind of bring my point together here. Um, old Time. In the first track and in this track, there is a audio motif going on where the, the, the hard uh, transition that happens in the first song after 25 seconds with the descending string do you know what I'm talking about when I uh, when I mentioned that? Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. The descending, the descending sound that recurs throughout the throughout the song. Yeah, it recurs uh, throughout the second song here, old time, and the, yeah. but it first shows up in Hand of God after that 25 seconds. How did you think about that transition in the first 25 seconds of the album? How did you take that? Because he he does start the the song very kind of standard ballady. He really uh, he sings the first verse where he's like, some people are trying to find out who, some people are trying to find out why, or some people aren't trying to find anything but the kingdom and the sky. And then he delivers that line, and then all of a sudden this descending chord, it's like very abrupt and abrasive in the mix that happens, and then it transitions into that kind of electronic drum that has a lot of energy, but also then some rising strings and descending strings that kind of give it some a weird... Lynchian vibe to me um, but I wanted to more specifically talk about that 
transition and how you felt about it. I thought it was cool. I thought it was a great way to introduce record and to announce the evolution of the of their sound and it immediately hooked me as a longtime fan as to what was in store on the on this record. Um, I didn't like it the first time because I thought it was placed very awkwardly. Um, it was very abrupt and it didn't really it just felt like such a hard cut so immediately that it was hard to kind of figure out what was really going on there and maybe my lack of history with the band is kind of missed kind of some context um but i thought it was like such an odd uh odd placement um and transition and especially with the how the abruptness and kind of how clashing it is like it's almost like mid lyric that it happens um but then it returns this kind of descending chord it returns in hand of god several times almost like three or four times uh, they use it but they incorporate into the instrumental is a lot better so yeah it happens there's this descending chord throughout the song like uh, almost a motif sound motif and i thought this was going to recur throughout the album and he would come back to this a little more and maybe the later tracks and there would be some sort of point to it but he used it in the first track he used it like four times in this track and then i never hear it again yeah i mean uh i don't know the, there's a the album is sort of split in two and yeah. you know this abrasive sound that you're describing from this descending chord is very characteristic of the more aggressive sound that you get on the first end of the album whereas on the back end yeah it disappears right it's definitely a like a two half album and the first half is a it's got a little more spunk to it and a little more like interest in terms of the 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 soundscape and then the second half i don't actually have that much of an issue with the second half um like but again i'm not coming from these previous three albums where maybe i'm a little more fatigued on that sound which some people might be i actually enjoyed uh, a few of the second half songs there's only like one song on the second half that i didn't particularly f enjoy but let's let's uh, focus a little bit on old time a bit it's just the first ha uh, this is a song from the first half and it was that motif that kind of caught me off because I was really thinking about it the whole time because I was didn't understand where this was going. And there's a lot of interesting places that they use that motif on this song. Like there's a part where they almost stretch it and like reverb it in a different way. And it, it fits in with the rising and descending uh, strings that he's using to create atmosphere. And it kind of like it's almost like it's snuck in there. Like it's a little more subtle than the other ones. Uh, where the other ones are a little more uh, jarring and, and uh, blunt. Um, there's actually a section of the song. What do uh, you? Let's go ahead. I was going to ask you, what do you think of the wiry guitar chord? They just they just strike the, in this wiry guitar chord throughout this song. And yeah, I think it's a it's a great accent. Yeah, uh, that's that comes in like halfway through, because yeah. they're they do this amazing string section that uh, connect verses uh in this song it connects like basically the first half of the song to the second half of the song essentially in old time uh there's this amazing uh string section uh, that it gets topped off with this wiry wiry reverb guitar sound uh, and then he gets it back into the next verse 
and now for the rest of the song and and after that verse begins there's a little accent on a bunch of things with that wiry uh wiry reverb guitar and i really enjoyed that part yeah and uh what do you make of the lyrics on this track i find the lyrics on this track to be some of the more unusual odd and perhaps the ones i don't like the most i like the closing image and this refrain that he always gets to about not being that far behind right but the way he gets there is just so strange i enjoyed um i enjoy when he gets descriptive in here and he opens the song with like white black trees and a field of frost uh, birds fly low and you and me and the car are lost. It's when he gets in this kind of pocket that I really enjoyed his lyrics more. There's other examples on the album. Let me uh, refer to them. There's uh, from some of the other songs and we'll get to them. It's when he writes like, I'm, I'm a 200 pound octopus under a sheet dancing around <laughs> your world with my hands and feet. Or is I'm bottle scene Venus with a penis riding an enormous scalp fan. I'm a seed foam woman rising from the spray and I'm coming to do you harm. It's like when he when he writes so expressively and wildly in his imagery, that's where I really hook into what he's saying. Yeah, sometimes it gets a little bit it's a he he pushes it a little too far as far as the unusual imagery goes you, you could almost say ridiculous like the one the image about the octopus i think that's just bizarre it but is the image about the uh, the woman who manifests from the sea spray i thought that was a great image it was like something you'd read in uh, greek mythology or something uh, you know what it kind of reminds me of and is an odd uh, comparison to pull um an airplane over the sea all the imagery on that album in the folk writing is super supernaturally and weird the three-headed boy and and stuff like that and even the album art and that's kind of the imagery of similar inspiration that i that he writes some places on this album like the octopus line that i really enjoyed i kind of like that kind of like uh, creative imagery what record are you referring to uh airplane over the sea neutral milk hotel uh huh. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So the uh, the album in the airplane over the sea by um, Neutral Milk Hotel has like King of Carrot Flowers and the Two Headed Boy, um, and obviously Holland nineteen forty five and all these songs are super uh, creative in their imagery, and Nick Cave gets into this kind of pocket sometimes where he creates very interesting creative imagery as well uh that i really enjoy and that's the pocket where he gets into this album where i enjoy the lyrics and i have something to grasp onto and and it really kind of motivates my listening there's other times when he doesn't get so uh creative with his imagery and he kind of kind of fades back into these weird refrains and stuff like that that i kind of lose them sometimes so like the refrain on this song for instance while well, stopping at a motel and go jumping into bed and this is the refrain, just like the old time. Yeah, wherever you are, darling, I'm not that far behind. Yeah, so I, sh I guess I should have said verse, not refrain, because it's some of the verses and some of the inf uh, stuff he says in between um, the refrains and the or the choruses, even though there's not quite uh, emphasis on choruses on this album. Um, sometimes he, he goes into these little pockets where he's not really being descriptive, and I'm in that kind of like imaginative way. 
and I'm not always like reading his lyrics to try and find all the meanings and stuff every time I'm listening to it. And the more lighter and breezy listens I go through here, it's the creative imagery that I that I latch on to and I find engaging, uh, and it keeps me uh, a, a part of the song. Where sometimes when he pulls away from that, uh, I can get a little lost. Well, I would say that I haven't more or less opposite experience because without some of these refrains that tie the song together it it gets it's almost like he's reading just passages of poetry over music yeah and for me that can become a little bit tiresome and i always check out the lyrics on a nick cave record because he's a great writer but sometimes especially with this new mode of lyricism that he's adopted over the past decade. He really pushes the imagery, the poetic quality of the writing, you could say. And sometimes the idea of a song structure or song writing can become a little bit lost in favor for something a little more literary. Yeah, I I can definitely pick that up here. Um, Although I thought... Warren does a good job of creating like a, a tone and atmosphere that's kind of menacing and and yeah. interesting. Um, there, I think after a while, sometimes uh, if they don't keep it new and they're not uh, advancing kind of like the the songwriting, it does kind of fall into like this poetry reading that can get a little numb. Yeah, but like you said, Warren Ellis is, does a great job, and I mean both of them are working to working together on the music but um more else can create great atmospheres and i think that's comes out of his work f- doing sa- movie soundtracks and it's what gives this record somewhat of a cinematic quality which plays in favor of nick cave's l- lyrical uh, songwriting but just to take one example from this song and then we'll we'll have to move on there's a lyric that goes by the side of the road is a thing with horns steps back into the trees and a child is born on this trembling earth displays each day thrown across the hallucination of your hair a strip of ordinary sun a biblical sun a colonial sun an enlightened sun and it's just the in creating a bunch of images the I understand maybe sometimes you know they don't the images don't need to mean anything but it just becomes a little bit preposterous sure okay and i find that sometimes tiresome when it works it really works like the the quote you quoted earlier but in cases like the lines i just said ah god uh yeah so let's work move on to carnage which is the title track of the album uh, how'd you find? What did you think of Carnage? Carnage is one of my favorite lyrical tracks, but um, musically, I thought it was just okay. It didn't really strike me. I was a little bit indifferent to it musically. Uh, I like the kind of like stringy, synthy melody that goes throughout the song. Um, it, it, it's introduced like almost immediately, and then kind of built upon as the song goes. Um, I thought this was the first really compelling uh, vocally that uh, Nick Cave was on the album. Yeah, it's interesting because this is probably the song 
vocally and lyrically that reminds me of what you would consider to be like a Boatman's Call era Nick Cave, which is the record you're really familiar with. Um, I, I think this is kind of cute. Uh, I th- <laughs> There's a lyric in here. It's uh, it's only love and a little bit of pain uh, of rain. Um, kind of buried the lead here, but I thought the lyric was uh, it's only love and a little bit of pain and not rain. <laughs> Yeah, when I was first listening to this, and I was kind of vibing with the previous, so I was like, oh, a little bit. I kind of, I kind of like that. But rain is fine too, and it kind of works with this motif that he builds up with the, you know, going down the mountain in the rain, uh, in a train. He, <laughs> a rhyming train and rain, and it's kind of simple. But the way he goes about it is a, is a, there's a little more impact going on here than than sounds. But you uh, had a Freudian slip. Yeah, I thought that was a kind of a cute little thing. I noticed when I was going through the lyrics, like, oh, I've been singing that wrong the whole time (laughs) yeah but uh yeah i like this the way he introduces that image of the rain and the train and the early and the mountains in the first stanza of the song and then when you get to the last stanza he sings it's only love and it comes on like a train it's only love rolling down the mountains in the rain uh yeah i thought that was quite beautiful right this was my first true highlight song for my listens um, the lyrics are more direct, even though they still hold an air of interpretation. Uh, the imagery is a little more compelling and, uh, and the narrative is a little more defined, I think in the song. Um, so it was a little more easy to, to grasp onto and, and really enjoy the track. Uh, so it was really re- well received on my end. This was like one of my favorite songs. I think uh, I enjoyed the backing vocals as well on this track. Sometimes again, I think, uh, cave can drone on a little bit in his baritone vocal style that kind of gets a little grating for me near the end of it but in this one he he pops his performance a bit and uh it gives you something more to grip onto uh it's a little more dramatic singing and a little it's really kind of melodramatic honestly when he performs that that uh that line uh it's only love and a little bit of a bit of rain the way he performs that line is 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 really uh i I could i could listen to it all day it's it's so uh so juicy yeah like this is a track that i can really picture them playing live and it being a very intimate song and it really captivating the entire audience and uh yeah i would really like to see this and it's not so there's a lot of production on some of these earlier tracks that we already mentioned Mm -hmm. which i think would be hard to replicate in a concert setting um, however, this song is very, very beautifully written and something that can be replicated live. Right. Um, there's a, he mentions like a child in here, the son, a barefoot child with fire in his hair. Uh, and then a sudden sun explodes. Uh, I don't know much about his son and I wasn't sure if he was referencing his son with that line. Because he sings it with such emotion that, like, it makes me wonder if that's maybe where that kind of uh, motivation came from. But I also know he's he's had, like, two albums, really, to get that kind of writing uh, onto paper. So I'm not sure if maybe I'm reading too much into what's going on there. No, I think it's fair to say the imagery of the sun, which occurs several times uh, on the record, is a pun on, yeah, the actual son the literal son and then the figurative son the son that he lost right and so this is kind of 
coming into like the midpoint of the album where White Elephant hits, which is the m- most uh, chaotic and aggressive track on the whole album. So this song is certainly one of the more aggressive songs that Nick Cave has written in many years. And it has some of the most outlandish lyrics on the album and also deals with themes relating to the climate crisis and environmentalism. And it's um, it, there's a lot to dig into on this track. And it's really the, it comes in the middle of the album and it really functions as the record's centerpiece it, it really does um i don't know about his history of aggression but i from my understanding of his previous work this last decade that this was really the tonal shift that people were interested in and really compelled by because he does get very aggressive on this track uh, in fact this is the first yeah, track well, I mean, he swears yeah yeah that's right and it's very i mean he he wrote an album called murder ballads the whole album is uh folk tales of serial killers right right and so the lyrics dive into yeah lyrics that you see on on this track with my elephant gun of tears i'll shoot you all for free if you ever think about coming in here i'll shoot you in the fucking face if you ever think of coming around here right he 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 gives it off which says see the menace that it's really compelling to like just listen to him go off and just comparing kind of like the the way he wrote this song with some of the earlier songs i felt like they were they think they, they kind of become a little more muted to me after listening to this and in kind of like the upper range of aggression and menace and compelling performance that he gives off in this song yeah the sinister tone that uh has been absent from his music for some time and I think for some of us, we thought was perhaps a thing of the past. Um, and I can see what you mean on repeated listens. The earlier tracks can seem like they're just really building towards this to, to towards this climactic performance that he gives here. I, I, I almost feels like it builds to the first time he swears because like he's so eloquent with all his other writings and stuff. And then he gets so crass there and swears and I, I it really emphasizes the lyric and adds more power to it uh, i really enjoyed it and this is the song obviously of the woman coming from the spray that i mentioned earlier with the arms of seahorses and uh, coming to do you harm uh, this is actually a really interesting lyrically lyrical song uh, you mentioned environmentalism and stuff like that uh, but there's also like reference to the more recent george floyd uh protest um I believe right here, uh, a protester kneels on the neck of a statue. The ne- the statue says, I can't breathe. The protester says, now you know how it feels and kicks it into the sea. And this idea of like kicking in and tearing down these old Civil War statues to these, like, uh, that, that was going on during this protest. And I think this brings upon that image as they kick it into the sea. In fact, I got the sense of like Nikkei was taking the narrator's uh, position as like white power and kind of that aggressive like racism. And he was kind of speaking with his elephant gun and his aggression and kind of like towards these protesters and towards these other people. And I think that's kind of where he's coming from the narrative voice that he assumes right. but then the, the images that he uses are very much images of the other side 
So like the this sort of racist anti-environmentalist guy, he he's gonna shoot you in the face with an elephant gun of tears. You know, it evokes this image of weeping elephants. Right, right. And then uh, yeah, the George George Floyd reference that you made earlier, and then the the statue destru- uh, the destruction of the statues that was happening earlier late la- uh, earlier in 2020. Right. Um, Piazza does this uh, very interesting gospel flip at the end, of, like for the second half of the song, um, and I think this is where I was saying he has this um, romanticism with using religious imagery. But I have no precursor belief that he is a religious man because the way he uses um, his voice uh, as a narrator on this song, and then brings into this gospel nature. It kind of gets the releases the sentiment that God is used for many things, but not all good, um, and kind of this idea that what they're doing is for a, a greater cause, and and you know, God is on their side, kind of thing. Yeah, it was, uh, for me, there's yeah, like you said, a stark shift in the song completely really in tone and music mm-hmm. it becomes far more yeah like heavenly and ethereal and his lyrics change qu- quite a lot and so does the music to match that shift in tone um but it had a bit of a an apocalyptic vision of the future of or not of the future of the present moment to comment on how it's a very tumultuous time in the world and that um we're going through this tumultuous time and then, you know, we'll come out better for it and start it with a new beginning uh, when it's over. This sound that occurs on the second half of the song is really the sound that prevails over the rest of the record. Right. How did you, how did you feel about the second half of the record? Because I think this might be where we diverge a little bit. And I thought we might because I, I'm not familiar with some of the last few albums he released. And I think the big critique on the second half is how it kind of pulls back in, into that realm after establishing such interesting um, energy and aggression and menace in, in these early tracks. Yeah, well, they capture a new sound in the first half of the record. But then they sort of, in my opinion, go back to what they've been doing, especially on Ghostine, where all of the musical arrangements are very ethereal and there are not any harsh chords anymore. The vocal delivery is lost its sense of aggression and it's far more meditative and... It's so that's certainly okay, but I think if they would have taken like that descending chord that you spoke of in old time and put it into one of these tracks, then it would have at least gave the album a better sense of symmetry. Whereas the album is sort of broken into two halves, and the second half of the album for me becomes very um, monotonous, I guess you could say, in the sense that. The sound from track to track, there's not, there's very little variance. Um, I think the biggest culprit of what you're describing is Lavender Fields. Uh, I mm-hmm. thought this was, uh, lyrically, he's kind of talking about the kingdom in the sky again. 
Uh, I just felt like that song just kind of existed and fluttered by without me really uh, having much to say. In fact, when I do my note writing, generally some of my first listens, I'll just listen to the song and if I'm compelled by a thought or an observation, I'll pause the song and go write it down before I lose it, right? And I listened to this song beginning to end and I think I wrote, the only thing I wrote down was he said kingdom in the sky again. Like nothing in the song really compelled any thought or or critique for me. It just felt like it existed in just from uh, it just kind of seems like it's over in no time and it's not really even that long of a song. If I checking here it's four and a half minutes but it just feels like complete uh, like cloudiness. Like it's just a fog that comes over me when the song comes on into the album. Yeah, and it really, uh, it's a bit tiresome. Uh, makes me, fatigues me on the record a little bit. And uh, for that reason, I think the last two tracks, I, once I dug into the lyrics, I developed a new appreciation for them. But before then, I was, I, it's, I was starting to tune out of the record by the time Lavender Fields was over. Yeah, and part of that's because Albuquerque is such a nice, pleasant, uh, pleasy, wistfully kind of song that um, having that right next to Lavender Fields, I think, was a little much. I think that kind of yeah. also goes against it. Albuquerque, just to go over a little quickly, is a kind of more of a ballad uh, cave, and it's a goes through the whole song. It's a nice. He he's very tuneful in the song and whimsical, and a very up uh, uplifting kind of feel to it. Um, Warren is great on this one again. Uh, it's just a very pleasant song that he does a little ballad. And, you know, this is the best way I can talk about it. It's a little bit of a COVID thematic going on there. How he's like, we're not going to get to Albuquerque. We won't get to the lake in, in Africa or whatever he references, unless you wish me there or something like that. Or, or And it's kind of like that kind of sentiment that, you know, you're not going anywhere here in COVID. And it kind of puts a, even though it's a kind of a COVID themed song, I thought, it's still kind of fit, you know, it's not very uh, blunt with its kind of, that kind of theme. And it was very nice and sweet. And I, I enjoyed Albuquerque. Uh, it's also probably the shortest song at like three minutes, 57 seconds, which helped it a lot. But it's, it's just a, like a pleasing song, you know, it's inoffensive. But I, after the menace of the earlier half of the album, I welcomed Albuquerque. I thought it was a nice uh, variety. I just thought it was a little compounded next to Lavender Fields, and Lavender Fields was really fluffy and and dismissive. Yeah, I think it, it's a it's a good track to put after White Elephant, which has so much drama, and it's really just like you said, a contemplation on the shuttered existence of the past year and how travel has been shut down, and we won't get to Amsterdam or that lake in Africa, and so on and so on, and. Uh, not the, it's, I think it's the shortest tr uh, lyrical track on the record. And um, yeah, it's a, perhaps a theme that's been repeated by a lot of people this year, but they do a good job with it. Right, right. It's hard not to write or be inspired by your surroundings. That's how a lot of people write. And it just happens to be that we're all, <laughs> we're all kind of in the same surroundings in the last little while, right? So it's hard not to right in such a way that is it's not gonna it's hard to write right now in this environment that it doesn't become 
uh, oversaturating the market with this of the all these kind of thematic songs. But it is what yeah. it is, and I and I think he does a good enough job taking a different approach that I haven't heard in other songs. Yeah, he does. A, I just think he does a nice treatment of the common theme of the present time, right. and he he speaks uh, he speaks about how travel shut down, but he incorporates how people because of that loved ones and family members have been separated as well, mm-hmm. and that's where he builds and concludes on this idea. We won't get to anywhere, darling, unless you take me there. Right, right. And so I think it sort of builds on this um, this idea that, you know, you have to keep each other in your minds, even though you can't be together physically. Uh, so Shattered Ground is the second last song on the album. It is actually one of my highlight songs. Uh, I really enjoyed Shattered Ground. Okay, what was it uh, that you really liked about it? I thought he got back to his aggression here uh, after the... Uh, after White Elephant, I thought this was the first time he gets back to the aggression because it's the it's the only other time on the album where he again he swears, and the build up from the last time he swore was through Albuquerque and Lavender Fields, which is like ten minutes ago, and and he's just gone through this wistful area, but he gets he gets into this love song, but he gets very defensive and aggressive about it. Uh, if I can uh, reference a lyric here. Uh, only you are beautiful. Only you are true. I don't care what they what they're saying. They can scream their fucking faces blue. And I, I great. I, I enjoyed that he he came back to this aggressive nature, and uh, it was very expressive. And his performance was really good on the song. Uh, some of the, uh, the lyrics again I liked was uh, a madness in her and a madness in me, and together it forms some sort of sanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found with this song. There, there are moments of aggression, but the overall tone of the song was much more in a mode that you would associate with balladry. Right. It is kind of like a love song, absolutely. But I, I just felt like he had more gusto in in, in his performance with, with this one. Yeah, I just, I, I wish there was more gusto. I guess is uh, is my critique. Just. I'm I'm a little bit nostalgic, and so that's why I, I I wanted to speak about this record because I'm a longtime fan, and you're sort of a little bit new new to their music, so you would come to it with a maybe less bias and nostalgic perspective. Right. And maybe this is a song that that comes out on, because I thought this was his best vocal performance, even though the musically, it's very sparse and atmospheric. And mm-hmm. it doesn't do a lot there, but I think it, Cave carries it through his his performance on this album, and it really makes it more tangible and easier to listen to. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're certainly right. I'll maybe have to go back to this song, but it didn't... I guess just based on what I was saying earlier, I was becoming a little bit fatigued after Lavender. If this is... If the problem... I, I kind of found this as well. And I kind of was wondering, because this album isn't that long of an album. It's a 40-minute album, right? And mm-hmm. I'm curious about that fatigue, because I also felt it. And I think it comes from um, these songs being so long. Um, each song individually is such a lengthy song uh, at, like, five minutes at average that I think it... You're, you're, you're going through the same song and the same sound... Uh, throughout a five-minute passage at a time as you're listening to this album, that the pacing kind of it gets hurt a little bit because of the length of songs. And I think that might be what's adding to your fatigue a bit 
because by the time you get to lavender fields and shattered ground you're you're at your your 30 minute your 35 minutes and with such like long stretches of time commit to a certain song uh, i think it can add to your fatigue i think for me it wasn't necessarily so much the length of the songs but when you get halfway through white elephant a uniformity of sound begins to take place okay and so by the time i get to shattered ground and it's the sound is not that different from what has happened on the past two and a half songs that uh i don't give i didn't pay as much attention to it as as i should have or as i as i would like to right and i think that also gets a little bit of blame put on lavender fields again which i think is the the weakest track on the album uh personally yeah. uh, i think it does hurt a little bit because after four and a half minutes of that song to go into shattered ground which doesn't immediately emphasize its point and get into that aggression it kind of takes a bit to build into that song that it's uh it's asking a bit of you to to hook, connect back into it yeah yeah that and i think they they sense that you know that the sound on the record in the second half was becoming a bit uniform and so they really wanted to like you said give this song some gusto to try to hook people back in give some variance in the tone give some variance in the mood that was becoming a little bit monotonous right so how did you feel about the very last song we'll go to balcony man eighth track final track on the album uh balcony man i came at balcony man from a lyrical perspective and i'm a little bit conflicted because i like the lyrics up until the refrain towards the end which repeats this morning is amazing and so are you it seems a little bit cheesy to me yeah that's a little cheesy uh when i when you read it out loud it definitely comes off a little cheesy i think he he does a lot in his performance of the line to make it sound more compelling and a cheesy line in the middle of his better writing and some of these other stuff that i think kind of gives him a little bit of freedom to get off some of those lines um, it's kind of why I felt like the, his first moment where he swears and, and comes crass and gets very short and aggressive was very compelling. The same way I think sometimes you can get off a little more cheesy lines and get away with it if you're if you're up to snuff in all these other areas. Well, I think uh, this song is, again, another COVID-related song. And it's just talking about people who are stuck at home and stuck on their balconies and they can't really go outside and i think the concluding line of this song summarizes the point of the song the best and what doesn't kill you just makes you crazy yes, right meaning that uh, this uh, being quarantined at home isn't going to kill you but it's going to is driving everybody crazy absolutely yeah and so i think maybe it justifies the lyrics i had problems with earlier but that you cited about the octopus i'm a 200 pound octopus under a sheet like it's uh, it's a little bit crazy it's a little bit zany but i think everyone is feeling a little bit crazy and zany after the past year so so in the end i'm kind of curious to hear your perspective uh in the grand scheme of the nick cave albums that you're familiar with which is 
probably way more than myself. How did this how did this album fit to you? Um, this album how did it fit? It's certainly it's certainly new, but I don't think they embraced the new sound. Like this seems like it's uh, still a work in progress a little bit, and of course it should be noted that they didn't release underneath the Bad Seeds moniker. And as we mentioned, maybe for COVID-related reasons, that's why they didn't. But at the same time, like, this isn't going to be a Bad Seeds record. And so it doesn't really, to me, have the Bad Seeds stamp of approval. It's not a Bad Seeds record. Okay. It's, something, it's something outside that discography. It's something else. Yeah, it's something else. And like I said, it seems like they're developing a sound, but it's just not there yet. And I think it's obvious based on how the second half of the record turned out. Okay. And, but you did you find, like uh, how I was reading a little bit around, um, that you enjoyed some of the return to aggression and return to like that kind of swagger that Nick Cave has kind of had long kind of swept under the rug? Uh, the rug? Yeah, I enjoyed how he became aggressive in his lyrics and how his n recent lyrical style that is very image-based and sort of cryptic and how he is able to use um, sinister imagery, you know, with the elephant gun made of tears. I thought that was a great line and it's a great image. And I like it when he, imp uh, when he assumes a point of view like he does on the Murder Ballads record, record. Mm -hmm. and he does really great lyrical performances and very great vocal performances when he's sort of playing a character. And uh, I would like to see that going forward on the next Bad Seeds record. Okay. Um, I was kind of leaning on your opinions to kind of shape mine of this album a little bit because I came up kind of... Uh, unsure of how I felt about this. It was really a non-starter for me, honestly. The first, few, uh, the first track, uh, the first two tracks, I it just it was hard for me to get past them. A lot of the time, uh, when I was listening and kind of like picking them apart, uh, it wasn't until Carnage that I thought the album picked up some steam and started to gripping me and making me more attentive to the, uh, to the album. And once I got to that point, I was able to go back to some of the beginning tracks and appreciate them better so i was mm -hmm. a little unsure of how i ultimately felt about this and spe specifically since yesterday i think i my, during one of my later listens i finally kind of like pulled the pieces together and kind of started enjoying uh, a lot more of what i was hearing but it was a little yeah. bit of a a tough build for me mm -hmm. and so you found the first half of the record hard to get into. Uh, I would say the first two songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, more specifically. Uh, Hand of God and Old Time. Uh, while I did enjoy them to a certain degree, their, their length became a fatigue for me. Um, and I was I did kind of get lost a little bit in his kind of baritone voice and just kind of like it was hard for me to grip onto things. And then I was reading the lyrics and he was a little obtuse. You know, it was. I had struggled to really grip onto those, and I was kind of a loss for what it was with this album that I was going to uh, was going to engage with me. 
Um, so what track would you recommend for people to, yeah, dip their toe in if they're just going to listen to one track? I would say the title track, Carnage. Mm-hmm, yeah. I think it's either Carnage or White Elephant. While I believe White Elephant is uh, probably the best song on the album, I think Carnage is more encompassing of what's happening here. Um, White Elephant is almost an outlier in certain respects. Uh, I don't know. I think it's the track that... Has, it's the most it, well-placed and most well-paced and has the most compelling lyrics. Uh, it's definitely the best song. I think it reflects the front and the back half of the album, the way that the song's split in two. Oh, yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. I wasn't thinking about the second half. It does kind of co- incorporate the two sides of the album. You're right. You're correct. I probably agree with you then. Um, yeah, but uh, Carnage is also a great to-win song. I also wouldn't be in, uh, amiss in suggesting shattered, shattered Ground, in my opinion. Um, but I know you were a little more conflicted with that song. I mean, maybe if you took it on its own, right. it would be different. But when you're listening to the record front to back, the, the pacing on the back end of the album, I, for me, even this song, Balcony Man, like as a concluding track... It's uh, I guess it work. It works, but a little bit weak, maybe. Yeah, I thought Balcony Man was a little weak. Uh, probably it was fine. Um, I think Lavender Fields weighs down the second half. I I liked uh, Albuquerque and Shadowground fine, and I thought Balcony Man was passable and, and decent, and Lavender Fields was just too fluffy and like non unneeded. I thought so. The second half mm-hmm. was a little more weaker than the first half. But I still enjoyed. Uh, I think there's definitely strengths in the second half. Uh, yeah, so what so, would you rate this totally? Um, I would give it a seven. I would say seven. I, I think give- I'm kind of in agreement here. I think while we kind of split a little bit in the parts that we liked in in parts of the album, um, I think I still come to that kind of like seven. I was working on like a six for a while. But during my last listens and kind of really kind of gelling with the album and kind of finding my groove within it and what I liked about it, yeah, it boosted up to a seven that I was a little more confident with. Yeah, um, I was I I would say it just makes the seven for me mm-hmm. because there are some just really standout tracks. But uh, yeah, the back half really weighs it down a little bit. People, if you know. You listen to it and like it, go pick it up. But actually, it's not going to appear in record stores until May, and you can only find Carnage on streaming services at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, did you? Uh, I have a few things that you want to talk to you about before we close this episode out. Uh, the other day, mm-hmm. I, uh, I, <laughs> that's I was going to send you a picture. Okay. And I want you to read it out for me. Um, so for a little bit of context, I'm going to send this to the Discord. For a little bit of context, yeah. uh, this is a picture. Uh, the other day, I... Make sure I'm picking the right one now. Yep. Okay, so I found a website that I used to visit when I was 12, 13, 14. That range of uh, time. And I sent mm-hmm. the picture along. And I went back and found posts I made 
when I was 12 and 13, which was the most cringiest experience you could ever imagine is to have some sort of vault of things that you would say when you were that age. So this is over half my life ago that this, this post has come from. And what I've sent it into uh-huh. the uh, Discord, if you use three posts by me, uh, if you could read these for me. Okay, uh, 12-year-old Brandon says, uh, Rap, it can just crawl up in a corner and die for all I care. Could you, could you, t- could you explain how I spelt crawl? Uh, okay, yeah, he spells crawl incorrectly, C-R-A-L. And, of course, there's no punctuation, everything's lowercase. And then, um, yeah, he has some angry-looking, I don't know, special characters placed before a sentence. Uh, that's the, that's the, the cover-up my swearing. Uh Uh-huh, okay. (laughs) Actually, so it's supposed to imply fuck pop, fuck rap. Okay, okay, I see. I wasn't so creative back in the day. Um, <laughs> this is funny. Joke Snelly, die you son of a bitch. Um, yeah, I used to listen to Nellyville all the time, actually, when we were this age. <laughs> uh, uh, and then, at the, to conclude these aggressive and violent remarks, you say, up with System of a Down and other bands. So, my, uh, my opinion back when I was 12, was uh, pop and rap, they suck. But, you know, bands like System of Down, although good band, those other bands I didn't mention, not not defendable. I'm talking about Disturbed. I'm talking about Seether. I'm talking about uh, all those cringe new middle bands. I'm like Korn. Uh, I'm pretty sure probably listened to, like, the first Slipknot album at this point. Some of these are better than other albums. I'm not trying to discourage Slipknot. But... You know, Drowning Pool. Any any song that came on before uh, WWE pay-per-view back in, like, 2005, that was on there. Uh, bodies. Th- that's what I'm defending here with uh, all this other stuff. So I thought that was really am- amusing that I... Uh, what my musical takes at 12, year old, 12, year, 12, 12 years old. Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, usually when you're that age, you're very much in one camp and against all the others. I thought it was kind of funny that my musical take at uh, 12 is basically your musical take today. <laughs> hey, that's that's not true. I like the <laughs> I like brass. That was a great record. Yeah, you did like brass. You did like brass. But I'm just more selective over uh, over rap music these days because I think some of the tropes and motifs and content of especially gangster rap to be rather yeah atrocious and disgusting uh, another reason by the way that we were late this week with the, our upload is uh besides this album being kind of a non-starter for me and struggle for getting into this is we wanted to talk about this other album uh tobacco release called uh fucked up friends three and uh uh Mosher, i'm pretty sure you hated it uh, from my perspective from, from the way you were describing it I was cursing your name, yeah. I was like, I can't believe he's getting us to review this record. Like, I did not like it at all. It was just full of saturated synths. And like I described to you, it sounded like some new wave artist from 1984 got Um, wasted on some cheap whiskey and sat down at the soundboard and just started hitting buttons. I I certainly will defend Tobacco's other releases that I liked, uh, including his main album releases for other Black Moth Super Rainbow. 
But uh, this album was a bunch of B-sides. Uh, it didn't really have the melodic uh, density that I was hoping for. So I kind of came to, because uh, Zach didn't mention anything to me. I just kind of came and I said, you know, maybe we'll switch albums this week. Uh, and we brought, and we did the Nick Cave one instead. I think you were, I just also felt it was an all instrumental album too. And some, and it's just a difficult album to talk about sometimes. Uh, so I just wanted to mention it lightly in passing here at the end, cause we were going to cover it, but, uh, it, it just ended up being too disinteresting or too grating for some people to listen to. So we didn't, <laughs> we ended up switching. Yeah. We didn't want to inflict that pain on you people. There's a, there's also a few, tr- uh, few things I became more aware of that are coming out that I'm kind of interested in. Uh, there's this new Uma record uh, that's coming down the line. There was a single she released called Nebula that was really, really good that I would recommend people checking out. Uh, when the album drops, I'll be checking it myself. Uh, there's also a very like funky and, and tasty um, track that was released by a, a Korean artist, I believe, called you, uh, I'm gonna butcher her name. Yukiika, Yukiika. Not sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. Probably very wrong. Um, but she's got the song called "Love Month," and it's very J-poppy, K-poppy, but it's also like very funky and like has a, a lot of like American influences as well. And it comes together in a very interesting way. And I, I'm not usually into that scene of J-pop or K-pop, and it's usually too bubblegummy and too produced for me. But this was an interesting more compelling uh, pocket that I was definitely into. So that's another album I think maybe we might touch on a little bit going, going forward. Um, and also, there's a few other ones, but those are the ones that kind of came to me while I was listening to not too long ago and got interested. I did hear the first uh, of those Shushu records uh, that you were talking about, and I definitely enjoyed what I heard, so I'm excited to see uh, when that album drops as well. Yeah, I mean they they've practically released half of the album already. <laughs> Probably, uh, I've only heard I've the only, one. I only listened to one song too, but every almost every other week they're releasing a song or two. Right, I don't, it might be a long album, honestly. Um, I believe the one I heard was "Rompus Room." Rompus Room, okay. Um, I can't recall now. It's been almost a month since I listened to. Listen to tracks that they released. They released in anticipation of their new record. But Rumpus Rumpus Room is the track, along with a bottle of rum, which is the title track of the album that they released this past week. Okay, so I, I had heard some of those. I was very interested, and some of these other tracks I wanted to highlight a little bit because I, I really enjoyed those as well. Uh, also, there, oh yeah, I just forgot. This is uh, going to sound a little on the more mainstream side that uh, wouldn't sound like something I'd be interested in, but I listened to a track they released uh, under... I, let me get the name right. Because uh, they have their own name, even though they're two very well artists. No, artists. Silk Sonic. Now, this is a, a collaborative album between... Uh, uh, one second now. I get the, the names right. Is this the one between Bruno Mars and... Yes, this is Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack, And I really, really enjoyed this song uh, that they released. Um, I believe it's called Leave the Door Open. 
And so they have an album coming together that I think would be interesting for us to cover because I can, I really enjoy Anderson Pack. And and on terms of that pop side, I thought Bruno Mars is one of the more talented uh, performers out there. Yeah, Bruno Mars's vocals are—they're mm, a bit hit and miss for me, but I do like Anderson Pack. And maybe with this, uh, yeah, duo, it'll Bruno Mars will be able to deliver something that I find him to be a little bit juvenile in his uh, lyrical delivery. Sure, sure. So I, I think a, uh, this might be a more mature approach. For the younger audience, and um, it doesn't appeal to me so much, but maybe with Anderson Pack, yeah, they'll be able to do something interesting. Right. I think uh, I think it could be an interesting one to keep an eye on. Uh, but all right, those are just a few things I wanted to comment on before we head headed out. Um, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, please, you know, leave it a like, subscribe, share it is the most helpful thing you can do if you enjoy these or want to help us out in any way. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, but I think this is a. I think I give this album a light recommend. Um, the Carnage. Uh, I think it's definitely enjoyable. I think there's tracks on here that take away and enjoy. If you're a more long-time uh, Nick Cave listener, what would you say, Zach? Do you think uh, uh, Nick Cave I mean, fans are, should definitely check this one out? Yeah, for sure. Just to uh, you know, track where they're going with this sound, especially in the first half of the record. And I mean, most long-time Cave fans are going to be checking it out anyways. Mm-hmm. But uh, Even if you're a little bit new to the band, I think... Uh, is that is it's in a way sort of a good entry point because it does summarize a lot of the different sounds that Nick Cave and Bad Seeds have done over the years. So 